You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in this field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting-edge research. Welcome back to The Chain. I'm your host, Rory McCann, and I'm joined today by Dr. Hank Greeley. He is a bioethics specialist as well as an expert in the legal and social implications of the newest advancements in biomedical research and technology. He is a law professor at Stanford University, as well as a professor by courtesy of genetics at the Stanford School of Medicine. In addition to his job at Stanford, he is the immediate past president of the International Neuroethics Society. He serves as a member of the multi-council working group of the NIH's Brain Initiative. He also co-chairs their Neuroethics Working Group, and he is also the chair of California's Human Stem Cell Research Advisory Committee. Dr. Greeley, welcome to the chain. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Awesome. I'd like to start by hearing a little more about your background. You are kind of the it guy for the intersection of science, law, and ethics with a very impressive history of writing, speaking, teaching, and leading on all these subjects. And that's a broad area of expertise. So I'm wondering, have you always been interested in this area of science? Well, um, I've done a lot of things in part because I'm old and I've been around (laughs) for a while. Uh, But I really started working on ethical, legal, and social implications of the biosciences in about 1989-1990. I'd been a law professor for a few years at that point. I started to do, I was doing mainly health policy work, but I got pulled into the sciences. My last bio class was in 10th grade in 1967-68, when we barely knew how to spell DNA, let alone deoxyribonucleic acid. (laughs) But I've always been interested in science and and was the sort of person who would pick up Scientific American on the newsstand. So uh, it all came together for me in the early 90s, uh, starting with genetics and the Human Genome Project. Then in 97, when Dolly's birth was announced, I started writing on cloning, and that led me to embryonic stem cell research. In 2002, I started working on neuroscience and neuroethics. And along the way, there have been bright, shiny objects that have distracted me, like de-extinction, human biological enhancement, research ethics, and assisted reproduction. Wow. So you started off professionally more on the law side, and you were interested in science and kind of married the two as you went along? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I like to call what I do law in the biosciences. Bioethics is part of it, but so is straightforward FDA regulatory law, um, intellectual property and patent law, issues around what the healthcare system will reimburse, which significantly affect what research gets done. Uh, so I think it's a, I think it's a field that deserves to have a name and be recognized because as biology continues to explode in terms of what we understand, its role in the economy, which is already big is only going to get bigger. And anytime something significant in the economy, there are jobs for lawyers, particularly for lawyers who have a little bit of knowledge about biology and who at least understand some of the vocabulary. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, you will never be bored in in that field. Well, that is the great thing about it. I'm I'm really a very simple hobbit and I do things because they interest me, not because of deep planning. (laughs) That's awesome. I, I like that a lot. I'd like to move a little bit into sort of the the star of the 
bioethics show, it feels like right now at least, CRISPR-Cas9. Most of our listenership are scientists and folks who kind of work in biologics and protein engineering, so I do expect a good number are familiar with CRISPR-Cas9 right now, but just for anyone who isn't, would you give a brief overview of the process and where we are today with the technology? Sure. This is one of the oldest technologies we could ever possibly use because it was invented by bacteria about 3 billion years ago. Uh, Its use as a tool for humans, though, dates back to 2012 in a paper published by Jennifer Doudna of UC Berkeley and Emmanuel Charpentier, who at that point was at Umea University in Sweden. This is an ancient bacterial immune system that recognizes and cuts up invading viral nucleic acids, DNA or RNA. What makes it so exciting and so useful is the bacteria, I'd say figured out, but I don't think figured out is quite right. Natural selection led to bacteria that were able to recognize particular sequences of nucleic acids and attach to them. So the CRISPR part, the clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, is kind of the the homing mechanism. It looks for certain DNA sequences or RNA sequences, and when it sees them, it attaches to them. It's made out of RNA that's complementary to the sequences it's attaching to. The Cas9 is, Cas stands for the very poetically named CRISPR-associated protein. The Cas9 then cuts the DNA, a double-stranded cut, at the location that the CRISPR RNA has clamped onto. This means if you are a bacterium and you're invaded by a virus with, say, double-stranded DNA, you can cut up that viral DNA and stop the virus from a successful invasion of yourself. What Doudna and Charpentier and realized, along with other people who were working at the time, uh, was that you could use this, humans could use this by creating a particular RNA sequence to look for DNA that they wanted to clamp onto and then cut it. And the double-stranded break would cut some out. And then, at least uh, in one of its formats, you'd rely on the cell's ability to recombine those cut ends, and you'd end up with a neatly excised bit of DNA. The next step was to also provide, along with the RNA, which serves as the homing device, and the associated protein, which serves as the scissors, to provide some DNA, which would serve as an insert and a patch, so that you would find the right location, cut out that string of base pairs, which might be a few base pairs long or 20 or 40 base pairs long, and then have some DNA handy to go into that hole. The overall function if it works well, is like a word processor's find and replace. Say uh, there's a manuscript that has misspelled my name, G-R-E-E-L-E-Y. I could have it find every place it's spelled that way, cut that out, and replace it with the proper spelling, G-R-E-E-L-Y. CRISPR could find every place where there's an A-C-C-G-T-A and cut it out and replace it with an A-C-C-G-T-C. That's the basic use of CRISPR. One of the really amazing things, though, is all of the new ways people are figuring out how to use CRISPR 
it's kind of turning into a Swiss army knife with lots and lots of different ways it can be used. But the basic use is to find, cut out, and replace DNA in organisms. That's a great description. It's funny, you hear experts talking about a topic that they know a lot about, and it takes, you know, what kind of expert who can describe in great detail this topic, but it takes, I think, a different kind to describe it really well for you know, any audience that they're working with. So I appreciate that uh, great description there. You know, I think it's partly an advantage of not having taken any bio classes since 10th grade. As somebody who comes to it as a sort of amateur, I think I've got a little bit more ear for when things are jargon. Um, I, I can remember things, how I came to understand them. And sometimes it's an advantage to not have grown up intellectually in a field when you're trying to explain it to others. I can be completely incomprehensible when talking about law because law is a second language to me. Biology is a third or fourth language, and I think that helps. Yeah, that's really cool. Or it could also just be a great endorsement for that uh, particular uh, sophomore biology course. <laughs> uh, now, we cut up a shark. <laughs> now, put gene editing on any headline and you get different responses from people crying designer babies to other folks saying this is a medical silver bullet that will solve all of our problems. And back in 2018, Chinese scientist Ho Zhongkui used the CRISPR-Cas9 technology to edit the DNA of two babies, ensuing in a firestorm with uh, one end of the spectrum being that he's using modern medicine to make these people less vulnerable to infection, while others claim it was illegal and criminally reckless. So from a bioethical perspective, can you cut through some of the noise and give us some insight into gene editing and the ethical framework in which industry leaders are viewing these actions? Well, I can try to, um, although I don't think there's any one bioethical perspective, but I certainly can give you mine. Uh, I'm on the criminally reckless side, but it's important to remember that using CRISPR or other things to do gene editing uh, it's a tool that can be used in lots of different ways. And the part that is most exciting, most likely to be complete, almost completely positive, is using it in people who've already been born to treat genetic diseases or to allow treatments of other diseases. Um, so that's using CRISPR as part of basically gene therapy to say, fix a broken cystic fibrosis gene, the CFTR gene, or fix the globin gene that causes beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease when it is in a particular sequence variation. That almost nobody objects to, um, and that's proceeding apace and will probably be, at least with respect to humans, the most important use of CRISPR and more broadly gene editing. What Hu Jiankui did, which um, I think was criminally reckless, was to try it on embryos to make babies. Now, when you put CRISPR into an early embryo, it's a little different from putting it into a 20-year-old or a 60-year-old or even a two- or three-year-old. You don't know how it's going to work throughout development. You don't know whether it's going to get into the cells and make the changes you want and not make changes you don't want. And more fundamentally, nobody had ever tried that before in humans. It had just barely been tried in non-human primates. 
So for her, who had no particular background in in uh, obstetrics, gynecology, assisted reproduction, or for that matter, human genetics broadly, he's fundamentally a biophysicist working on analysis of very small quantities of DNA and RNA. For him to jump into this and immediately go to trying to make babies, uh, I think was criminally reckless. We can only hope that the babies he made are well. Uh, and literally, we can only hope that because we have no idea what kind of condition they're in. Uh, the Chinese government has been very, very secretive and private, claiming that it's respecting their privacy, but has really released no information at all about either the first two babies who were born, who were born in October of 2018, or a third baby who was born sometime in the summer of 2019. It is the recklessness there. It is the the risk taking on behalf of babies who did not get a chance to consent and parents whose chance to consent was deeply compromised by a very bad consent process that is really fundamentally objectionable. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Chain and wanted to let you know about one of my favorite events coming this spring. The 16th annual PEGS conference is taking place May 4th through the 8th in Boston, Massachusetts. PEGS brings together a wide range of programs and topics from diverse perspectives that includes a mixture of industry and academic presentations, all centered around innovation, problem solving, and sharing ideas. You can save $100 on registration with the code POD100. That's P-O-D-100. Head over to P-E-G sumit.com to learn more about PEGS, the Essential Protein Engineering and Cell Therapy Summit. Now, he was sentenced last month to three years in prison. What do you think are the implications of this sentencing? What do you think the effect on the industry will be? Well, so the industry is mainly concerned with gene therapy and living people. This should have no effect on that part of the industry. What Hu Jiangkui got sentenced for was both the recklessness of trying this in human embryos when it had never been tried, he hadn't done sufficient preparation, it hadn't been thoroughly discussed, and also just flat out breaking Chinese rules. He forged an ethics certificate. Uh, China doesn't allow people with HIV to take part in assisted reproduction. A bad policy, I think, but still their law who had people who were not infected pretend to be the parents in order to get clean viral tests, clean HIV tests. He just lied to the authorities. So I think industry probably doesn't need a lot of examples to say, hmm, don't lie to the authorities, don't forge documents, don't do things that are extraordinarily risky without getting them properly approved. I do think his sentence should be a good warning for for people like him, for, for scientists who want to uh, shock and astound the world, want to become famous in the worst way, which is the way that he became famous, uh, to say, look, there are going to be consequences to this. You really, all those things that seem like you're just filling out paperwork and going through bureaucratic blah, 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 it's pretty important bureaucratic blah, blah, blah to go through and to listen to. Uh, and I think it's actually having that effect. There's a scientist in Russia who's saying he wants to do CRISPR babies, but he's saying, I will go through the proper Russian authorities. I will make sure that it is properly approved. 
And those Russian authorities are making it pretty clear that it's not likely to be approved anytime soon. So for industry, whose main interest is treatments for living people, it doesn't say very much. For those people who are really interested in doing embryo editing, I think it is a really good cautionary tale. Do this and you're not going to be hailed as the great scientific savior. You may end up thrown in jail. Do you think that it might inspire some, for lack of a better word, copycats going well? You know, maybe he didn't do it right like this, but I could do it right if I only do do it my way. Do you think kind of do you think in some ways he opened Pandora's box that maybe people would not have tried that beforehand, but now that he has and we don't know the full extent of the outcome yet, and we probably won't ever, or maybe not for a long time, do you think it might inspire some copycats who might try to take it maybe a step further or just go down different avenues to get their achievements. Right. And, and that raises a really important point. There are some people, I'm not one of them, who think that any kind of genome editing in embryos is a bad thing, uh, mainly because when you edit the cells of embryos, you end up editing all of their cells, their immune system cells, their blood cells, their skin cells, their brain cells, their kidney cells, and importantly, their gametes, their eggs and their sperm, or at least the cells that become eggs and sperm. And so unlike gene therapy in a living person, where if you, oh, change the CFTR gene in somebody's lungs, that change will die when that person eventually dies. If you make a change that affects eggs and sperm, it could affect generations to come down to and, and beyond the end of our species. A lot of people say, can't do that, that's wrong, period, should never do that. And Hu Jong-Kui was the first one to do that. I think to the extent it's a Pandora's box issue, the box was there, someone was going to open it sooner or later. My main objection to what he did is uh, he opened it at the wrong time in the wrong way without the appropriate approvals with a very bad risk-benefit um, calculation. For me, at some point, if it's done through proper channels and if the potential benefits to the embryos outweigh the by then well-established and well-understood risks, I don't have an objection to it. I don't see it as uh, a terrible Pandora's box, but there are a lot of people who do. So whether you see what he did as fundamentally doing something that people should not do, or whether you see it as a premature and reckless effort to do something that we may or may not at some time in the future want to do, really depends on where you stand on this fundamental question about germline modification. Do you think his case highlighted any cracks in the system? What is the oversight like, and how do you, how do you think this case will have an effect on the oversight moving forward in, in some ways was he so far out of the the established way of doing things that it won't really have an impact or are there maybe some holes that need to get sewn up after this so i think there were clearly holes in china that needed to be sewn up and maybe holes in other places in most of europe doing this is flatly illegal 
there are laws that ban it in the UK, in most of the EU. In the United States, it's also illegal, but in a more complicated way. If you're trying to modify a human embryo, the FDA says that human embryo becomes a drug or a biological product, and you can't do it even in research without FDA approval. You can't do it clinically without a new drug application being approved or a biological license application being approved, but you can't do it even for research without an investigational new drug exemption, an IND. To get an IND, you have to tell the FDA reasons to, for the FDA to think it's safe in humans and might be effective. Um, FDA is unlikely to find that with respect to embryo editing anytime soon. But even beyond that, Congress, starting in 2015, December of 2015, has each year put into the FDA's appropriations bill something saying, effectively, they cannot grant an IND for any sort of germline modification. Any IND for that purpose, according to this appropriations writer, an amendment added to the appropriations bill, is, quote, deemed not received, close quote. And if the FDA hasn't received the application, it can't approve it. It can't go into effect. So this is already illegal in the United States. It's illegal in most of Europe. It's illegal in a number of other countries. It was unclear whether it was illegal or not in China. About two days after it was announced, it became pretty clear that Beijing thought it was illegal in China. And whatever one might read in the Chinese statutes, if Beijing thinks something is illegal, if the Communist Party thinks it's illegal, it's illegal. And so now it's clearly, it's clear that in China, this is illegal. Um, but China has, to their credit, done a lot in terms of adding new mechanisms, new committees, new uh, rules uh, with respect to this kind of research in the year and more since the Hujiangui affair surfaced. Uh, so that now I think it's quite clear to a Chinese scientist if you want to do this, you're going to have to get really special permissions and you're probably not going to be able to do it. I think it is fair to say that when He started, the law was less clear. Uh, now it's more clear. And now China is beginning to put in place more structures to implement the law well. Even if it were illegal everywhere, would that prevent a rogue scientist from going off, hiding in a lab somewhere and trying to make a baby? You can't say that anything will necessarily prevent somebody from doing illegal acts. I would note this is a little trickier because you can't just do it in your closet or in your garage. You need an IVF clinic in order to be able to do it. And IVF clinics typically have licenses and income and other stake in the game. They have things to lose that will make them reluctant to get involved, at least once it's clear that this is illegal. So. You know, one good thing that's come out of the He fiasco is that is the, the status of this kind of work in China, which is one of the most important countries in the world in genetics research, has now become clear. Now, just in closing, this this particular case in a lot of ways is a little outrageous and, and, and novel, but what are some maybe more the word I'm looking for. What what are some more applicable takeaways that can be applied to maybe the global scientific community, if if there are any in your in your perspective? Yeah, I, I think there are, um, and 
one is limited to work with humans. If you're going to do research on humans, be careful. Make sure that you've got you that you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. Make sure that the potential benefits, either to the research subjects or to science, are worth the potential risks. Make sure that the people who are taking those risks or agreeing to those risks on behalf of their babies really understand what's going on. Those bureaucratic uh, ethics approvals, they're there for a reason, and it's a good reason. So science needs to be recommitted to being very careful about human research. Uh, anytime you do something for the first time in humans, you never know what's going to happen. And being cautious is really important. But I think there's another lesson, too. And this one um, has come out in the aftermath of the huh affair. Some people have said scientists need to call for a moratorium on all this other, all this kind of research. And others say, well, no, it's illegal in every place that's likely to be able to do it. We don't really need to call for a moratorium. But I think the deeper issue is some scientists at least sound as if they're saying, oh, trust us, we'll make the decision, we'll figure out when it's safe, when it's appropriate, and so on. And uh, I think that's a mistake. I think science needs to adopt a more humble position of saying, look, ultimately, society is going to decide whether this gets used or not. We can make recommendations, we can talk about safety issues, but ultimately, if the people of a country don't want it to be used, it's not going to be used in that country. So science cannot divorce itself from its society and that society's culture and politics and government. It's impossible for it to do so, and it's arrogant and off-putting for it to try. So I think one lesson here is science needs more openly to acknowledge that ultimately what it can do and how it can do it will be decided not by science, but by societies in conjunction with listening to, we hope, and hearing what the scientists have to say. There is, I think, one last issue here. It turns out that there were quite a few people who knew what Hu Jiangqi was doing before he made the announcement. Now, estimates vary between 10 and 60, uh, and at least 10 outside academics, academics outside China knew about it. None of them said anything to any authorities. And I think that's a mistake. I know it goes against both many general cultural norms as well as scientific norms of confidentiality. But people need to report dangerous and unethical activity when they see it. Who to report to and how to make that report, those are tough questions that I think the structure of science and governments need to address. But scientists need to, to be aware that if they see something, if they see something wrong, whether it's something dangerous with respect to biological warfare or whether it's something dangerous with respect to human reproduction, they should tell somebody. Uh, that's a lesson from Hu Jiangqi that I hope science will learn. That's a great lesson. The collaboration, the working together of science, society, government, everyone working together, people taking care of people. And uh, Dr. Greeley, you are the expert on you know, that collaboration. So 
Thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us on the chain. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. Greeley, he will be speaking at the Molecular Medicine Tri-Conference next month in San Francisco, California on Tuesday, March 3rd. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. Tune in next time for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering.